Starting off, though, today, talking about schools and COVID-19 in schools. And I'm pleased to welcome Rani Sangara back to the program, the president of the Cambridge Elementary Parent Advisory Committee. Thanks so much for being with us again. Thank you, Jill, for having me. We really appreciate it. Uh, well, we wanted to check in with you again with the reopening of the school and how are our things going and how is uh, kind of the, the anxiety level of parents? Uh, the anxiety level is very high. Um, as you can imagine, we're just, um, we weren't happy with the email that we received from the school. Uh, we felt that there was um, no real change. There has been no transparency. Um, the school did have a health and safety check done on Thursday, which the PAC and the parents wanted to be a part of, but we were told that we couldn't be part of that, that it was just the employees, so the teachers and the employers, Fraser Health, were going to be doing that. So as you can imagine, we are very frustrated still, um, and I know that some parents did keep their children at home today. Uh, we were speaking with Jordan Tinney on the program uh, last week on Friday. Uh, we were uh, speaking uh, with uh, Mrs. Lorenko, who is thankfully at home and con- continuing to get better after getting COVID-19. Uh, after uh, we spoke with her, Jordan Tinney, uh, the superintendent, came on. Uh, we, uh, we were trying to ask that or get some clarification of that in that if we don't know exactly how things got so out of control at Cambridge, when it does reopen after a thorough cleaning, uh, how can parents and students and teachers be, uh, be be told that it won't happen again. Have you been able to get any answer to that question? No, we haven't. So we just we received uh, an email saying that there was less than three percent of students um, which tested positive, and no teachers tested positive. So we don't really even know the exact number of kids that were positive. So Fraser Health has not reached out to us, has given us no exact numbers. So we don't even know. Um, if it was like 3%. I mean, I'm not even really sure what is that about, 22 to 30 cases then? So that's what parents are, are, are saying too, that Fraser House lack of communication is so frustrating. We get told, okay, you need to self-isolate for 14 days. Then someone else gets told, well, you're negative, now you don't have to self-isolate. Or so-and-so in your household doesn't have to isolate. There's a lot of confusion amongst parents and this community that what is the real answer to self-isolating and what happens when you get a negative test at day five do you go back at you know do you still wait because you might be positive at day 10 so that's a big i think concern amongst parents is that we don't even know the exact numbers that were tested positive at our school which does seem like that would be, uh, and I know they use privacy as an issue for not releasing a lot of the more specific details, but it's not as though people are asking for exact names or, or even classes, exactly. I'd imagine. Exactly. At Newton Elementary, which has now been ordered closed because of an outbreak, so parents there and teachers there have been told that at least 16 people have tested positive. So are you not getting the same level of information? So uh, I believe at Newton Elementary, when I spoke to somebody there, they were telling me that they received a letter to for the outbreak, but they were never really told that with 16 confirmed cases in that letter. Most parents found out through social media that um, the 16 cases were confirmed. So, I mean, we were told when they shut down um, Cambridge that there were, I believe, six students and then the teacher, so seven um, people had tested positive. But, I mean, we were hoping that, that they would have released the numbers by now. And... We're not sure why they're not releasing the numbers. Like, we're not sure why they're not saying, okay, at Cambridge, so many, so-and-so, all the kids were tested. 
these many teachers were tested, and out of those tests, these many were positive. Right. And did you say that that they said no teachers had tested positive? Uh, That's what they said, yes, in the letter. So um, we're assuming that these are the tests that were done after Mrs. Lorenko. So they didn't include include the six plus Mrs. Lorenko in, in, in the letter that they sent out. Which also has to be a bit frustrating because I think what, what people would like, at least, is is one final number and not these are the numbers from before this, these are the numbers after. Why not exactly. just say that these are the actual numbers of the entire, of this is everybody? And that goes back to being transparent with us. We, we as parents deserve that. We feel that, you know, those are our kids in, in that school and we, we don't need names, we don't need classrooms. We need to know exactly how many cases were in our school. You know, it's also frustrating that, you know, we have to go onto Facebook um, in order to get school exposure um, known how many. There's over a thousand exposures um, at schools in in Fraser Health. Um, And just it's just kind of concerning how what the lack of communication that's coming out of Fraser Health. We've asked we've said this before that if you need to make a special team just for school, then please do so. We want to keep our schools open too. I know that parents want to keep schools open. It's important for kids to have their learning, but we also need to get information faster so that, you know, there's no more schools that are closing. Now, you know, ours was the first and we had said when it happened, you know, trust us, it's not going to be the last. And now Newton's doing it. And then I'm hearing from a lot of different schools that, oh, you know, three classrooms are being asked to isolate or two from our, our class, our school are. So there's a lot of people reaching out to us and saying, you know what, this is happening everywhere now. I know you said that uh, the PAC wasn't uh, allowed to be part of the health and safety meeting that took place. Uh, when we spoke with Mrs. Lorenko, some of the issues she brought up, and I, and I know it's a bit different in that she was teaching music, she was teaching a bunch of different grades, uh, but she did say that she was in a portable, she didn't feel safe, there wasn't a sink, there wasn't anything that made it possible to do hand washing between classes, and they would be out of their sanitizer by the end of the day. H- have you been given any idea that things like that have changed? No. So we received a letter, uh, sorry, an email late Friday afternoon stating that um, the only change that the school was doing was um, recess and lunch was going to be staggered. So they were also told us that they encourage parents to um, drop off their kids and then leave school grounds, encourage students to wear masks, uh, encourage parents to wear masks, encourage parents to um, show, show their younger kids how to button up and, and put their clothes on so the teachers don't have to help. But the only thing that we were told was that uh, recess and lunch would be staggered. Now, we've asked for a lot of different other things that, that needed to be changed, like, you know, better cohort um, management outside and inside. Um, we need more transparency. Communication exposure needs to be told, told faster. We need to have more distancing classrooms, which is not possible because they have round most classrooms have round tables and square tables and so the kids that are sitting on the round tables are facing each other Hmm. so i mean i know that dr henry once said you know if i'm in my office i wouldn't be wearing a mask uh, because i'm sitting at my desk so that way the children shouldn't be because they're sitting at their desks but miss but dr henry isn't sharing a desk with anyone that we know of you know Uh Right. So the kids are sharing a, a sharing a round table. So when they're talking, it's it they're like facing each other, and that and that's a problem too. 
Just quickly before I let you go, do you know of many parents uh, in uh, at that school, or have you heard from others that are participating in, in the sick out that's happening tomorrow? Uh, we have been discussing it on our Facebook group page, um, but the exact numbers are not there. And, you know, I, and, and it's unfair for that, too, as well, because a lot of parents are working. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a lot of different reasons why parents cannot participate in that. Um, but I'm sure that um, if they could, they would. But you know what? Again, it just goes back to um, just keeping our kids safe. We just want our kids to be safe. And, you know, I think what we've asked for and the changes that the parents at Cambridge have asked for um, weren't that severe and they could have possibly tried to do more. All right. Uh, Rani Sangara, we'll leave it there for today. But thank you so much. And I'm sure we will talk with you again. Thank you, Jill. Thanks so much for being with us. Well, earlier today, we heard an apology from the B.C. government for systemic racism in B.C.'s healthcare system. And this follows a months-long investigation about alleged racism. It was led by former Children's Commissioner Mary Ellen Terpelafont, who joins us on the line now. Thank you so much for being with us. Hi, Jill. Hi. Uh, So this investigation, as people will likely remember, was prompted when people came forward with allegations of uh, a horrible uh, game that was allegedly being played in some hospital uh, emergency room departments. Uh, Interesting. So the report did look into that. But what did you find? Well, I didn't find that there was a game that was alleged to be called Price is Right played at emergency rooms across BC. So I I didn't find widespread evidence of that organized game. But what I did find um, was widespread stereotypes and discrimination, less access by Indigenous people to health care, resulting in some very significantly poor outcomes, especially at point of care. So in a way, Jill, I actually, you know, it may have been less painful if I would have found just a game that was happening away from patients. What I actually found was at the point of care and in the, in the clinical setting, uh, fairly widespread racism circulating throughout the healthcare system in BC. And, and did you find then that the, the racism, not that any of it is okay, but was it targeted at particular groups or were there some areas where you found it was much worse than others? Um, well, first of all, I found it everywhere, and I do have a trigger warning in the report, and there's numbers to call for support in case any of your listeners um, have difficulty with what I'm about to say. Um, but I did find sort of the top stereotypes that continue to impact the point of care are beliefs that Indigenous people are less worthy, that Indigenous people that were drinkers or alcoholics, drug-seeking, bad parents, frequent flyers, non-compliant less capable, get stuff for free, and a whole bunch of misogynist views about Indigenous women being sexually available or having too many children, etc. So the stereotypes that are circulating at the point of care were very um, similar throughout all parts of the healthcare system, like all regions. Not one stood out over the other. They were all over. And the kinds of discriminatory treatment that I found that stems from those stereotypes were pretty common all over BC too. What does that say then, that it took this allegation of a game being played in emergency room departments to, to kind of get the ball rolling and to get to, to a place where we were, were actually able to hear from people and get this information? 
Well, I, I guess, first of all, you know, it wasn't accurate that there's this game, but behind it was something much more significant, which is extensive discrimination. So I'm grateful that Minister Dix asked for the game to be investigated and for the system to be looked at in terms of whether or no there's any evidence that there's stereotypes, prejudice, uh, you know, racism, whether it's direct, indirect, implicit or explicit operating in B.C., Um, But now that we've looked at it, you know, we were pretty shocked by how serious and prevalent it is. And I'm not saying every Indigenous person that goes to get care today will experience racism. I'm just saying that any Indigenous person that does could. And it's that significant. So the type of racism, the discrimination, the abusive interactions and denial of service, the ignoring and shunning, poor pain management, medical mistakes, these are all very, very serious. And so we've got to start to to work more systematically on it. And I, you know, I'm grateful that Minister Dix accepted the report, the recommendations, but there's a lot there's a there's a lot of work to be done, including not just by Minister Dix. Right. So what what can be done in that? Uh, I, I know that there are going to be liaisons appointed and, and it will be addressed. That will be one way that it's being addressed. But what do you think needs to, to start immediately and what needs to be done? Well, I'd like the government to apply the whistleblower legislation to the healthcare sector so people can bring things forward without fear of recrimination, because I offered confidentiality, which is how I got such unprecedented cooperation And I got to see a lot, and so I was able to see things, but people were terrified about retribution. So we need a speak-up culture in healthcare where people can speak up, but speak up to the proper channel so it gets dealt with, so it's not all being bottled up and coming out sideways and then affecting things in the collegial environment for Indigenous healthcare workers and others. So I like the speak-up culture to be strengthened in healthcare. That means, like, the health authorities and others were not covered by the whistleblower legislation that came into effect that the ombudsman had recommended a few years back. So I'd like that to happen immediately. I'd like other steps to be taken to address, um, you know, the, the beliefs that underlie this, the, the behaviours that need to be addressed, and then the system changes. So I've outlined, you know, 24 recommendations. Some of them are, like, immediate and take change right, right away today. Others, yeah, they're going to take some time because we need to build the confidence of Indigenous people. They have so much mistrust. I don't want them to avoid care. And I literally had hundreds of cases where people said, you know, I would rather die at home than go back there and get that again. And that's just not acceptable. That's for treatable conditions. Um, And so I think the report could be helpful for people to read and understand what does prejudice and racism look like. And even people that say, like, I'm not a racist, yet, you know, they're expressing very prejudiced opinions about Indigenous people that are quite entrenched and we need to we need to really like work on that together pretty rapidly through their professional colleges their workplaces um, and of course create better patient safety and when you look at the surveys that you put out to people to get the information that was released today uh, when you talk about about the the trigger warnings and people who are horrified and and have gone through these experiences uh, it sounds like there there were probably a lot of scenarios as well where people didn't fill out the surveys or didn't tell uh, tell you everything because they they were so horrified or or like you said a, a, a fearful of retribution oh, absolutely like we had the boat about 6,000 Indigenous people, which is like 
really impressive for BC, including, you know, I was back and forth this morning with one um, person, about one person who's 86 years old, First Nations guy who filled out the survey. Like, I mean, credit to him. It's a complicated survey, right? A lot of people started it and then they got halfway through and then they called the 1-800 number or emailed and said, I can't finish this because it's too upsetting, but you need to look into this or I want to tell you the story. So I still got like nearly 3,000 completed, which is the biggest ever in the history of Canada. But it just also shows you that if there's a supportive environment where people feel they can call and tell their story, and this was really the case with Indigenous women, because I got a lot of Indigenous women, and I detail cases in this report, like an Indigenous woman who was very roughly handled in an emergency room, and she's like, you know, you're hurting me. And the attending doc was like, well, I thought you Native women like it rough. Like comments like that, you know, they came, they told me these things. They said, you know, I'm going to tell you because nobody else is going to listen. And you yourself, given your background and knowledge, will probably hear me out. Um, and, you know, that's not acceptable. And, you know, that isn't acceptable. But they don't feel safe to bring these complaints forward. And when they did bring them forward, then they got a big lecture from the attending, you know, doc about how he's not a racist and or a sexist or what have you. And so what I found was it's like the communication is so poor and the harm caused to people who need care. This prejudice doesn't belong in our healthcare system and we need to root it out. And so with these recommendations, because that, that is, uh, I, I would hope anybody that heard that would be horrified as well. How do you make sure then moving forward with these recommendations, change does happen and this doesn't become a report or an investigation that sits on a shelf? Well, I was very encouraged by Minister Dix. I mean, obviously, I gave this to him. He asked for the review. I went out and looked at um, Shauna Bright Light and brought it back and brought back the voices and experience of Indigenous people in all parts of the province, every region, every hospital, every clinic. Um, But I liked what he said today, which is, you know, he is going to direct and encourage that the, the, the privileges that you have to practice your profession in a hospital do not include the privilege to have racist and prejudicial opinions toward Indigenous people, and that that has to change. So I like the idea there's going to be clear message, clear accountability, um, I mean, taking it seriously. And remember that even in my healthcare surveys, I received 531 racist like comments back, like really pernicious racism back from people who were completing the survey, even though they were identifying racist interventions or interactions with patients, they were also repeating like more than 500 repeated racist like beliefs and, and attitudes about Indigenous people. So it is deep-seated and it is going to take work um, and it's going to take a lot of people in health professions pulling together and I'm looking forward to seeing how they respond to this report today. All right, uh, we'll leave it there for today. Thank you so much for taking the time with us. Thank you, Joe. Well, coming up on the program, we are going to talk more about uh, that story. Some churches that are refusing to close down and follow the public health orders. What uh, rights do they have? Does religious freedom trump public health? We're going to talk about that after the one thirty news. Right now, though, we are checking in with a group called Step Up, and they have taken issue with Vancouver's upcoming budget, saying the city is spending too much and not focusing on the core services that the city is responsible for. And Andre Pavlov joins me now, a Step Up volunteer and spokesperson, also a SFU professor of real estate finance. Thank you so much for being with us. 
Thank you for having me. What concerns do you have? I know there are a lot of Vancouver residents that also have concerns about the budget and spending at Vancouver City Council. Uh, what is at the top of your list? Well, my main concern, I think, is that uh, uh, Vancouver single-family homeowners already pay the highest property tax in Canada. So when you when you take the property values into account and the and the tax rates, and you compare the Vancouver to other cities in Canada, you Vancouver ends up on top with the highest property um, tax bill. And this matters because single-family homes consume relatively the same um, type of services across Canada. So it is not clear to me why we're paying uh, so much more than um, any other city in Canada, any other, any other major city. Um, and then on top of that, we last year we had a 7% tax increase, the second highest in Canada, and then looks like we're going to get another tax increase this time around. Um, so my main concern is um, why this increase is happening, and uh, is it because we're providing core services in a very inefficient way, or is it because we're providing core services in an efficient way, but then we're, uh, provide, well, we're spending money on, on non-core services? Uh, when we talk about this now and the increase in taxes, uh, there is there is also a lot of talk about the pandemic and how the pandemic has have a, had a negative impact on not just the city of Vancouver, but on the, the finances of a lot, if not all, local governments. Uh, but your group has also looked back at the history of Vancouver. And what, do, what, do, what have you found as far as the spending and the spending patterns even before we were at the place where the pandemic had hit? Well, the, the 7% increase last year um, was uh, happened before the pandemic. It has nothing to do with that. So Vancouver was already uh, paying uh, very high property taxes. Vancouver residents were paying very high property taxes, and those taxes increased uh, the second most in, in Canada, only after Calgary. Um, of course, Calgary has much, much lower property taxes to begin with, so um, in terms of dollar amount, our property taxes are very, very high. Uh, and uh, I know when the mayor is asked about this and uh, the question is put to him and the comparison is made to other cities, uh, be them in Metro Vancouver or, or as you just said, Calgary, uh, one of the things that he will say or, or city councillors will say is that Vancouver has unique issues or has, say, the downtown east side has more housing issues, has more expensive issues than, say, a Port Coquitlam. What do you say to that? So that's a good point, but how is higher property taxes and increasing them more, uh, how does that make Vancouver more affordable? Uh, On the contrary, the concern should be that uh, since our city is so unaffordable on on so many other dimensions, um, uh, we should take steps to to address that problem rather than uh, make it even less affordable by, by raising taxes further. And I also find it a bit ironic that uh, a city like the city of Vancouver is concerned about uh, our housing affordability when, in my view, the obstacles uh, they put to housing supply increases are a great part of, of the reason our housing is so unaffordable. And do you have examples of that? Well, it takes years to get any project approved. Even a single-family home uh, you know, uh, takes uh, a few months uh, or up to a year. And then once you get a project approved, uh, the city has a whole bunch of um, uh, requirements on on the building that uh, really have nothing to do with with, uh, the quality of the building um, and just increase costs and delay uh, 
delay the projects. So when that happens, of course, fewer people are willing to build. And when they do build, they need to charge, um, you know, very high prices to cover all those additional costs that uh, the city uh, approval process is um, really imposing on them. Um, you mentioned as well, or a release put out by your group also has talked a bit about the climate emergency plan. And I think others have made this point too, in that there is a lot in that climate emergency plan, which doesn't actually fall under the jurisdiction of a civic government. Is that an issue where you are looking at spending as well, or where you think there could be a place to, to really strip out what's not civic jurisdiction and, and not increase spending because of that? Well, I think it's very important to to fight climate change and to to reduce emissions um, in a way that is effective. So we need to we, we we have certain amount of money we're willing to spend on this as a society, and it's very important to to spend this money in in a way that it maximizes the impact of of those um, money and, and and the efforts we put into it. And um, having Vancouver buildings. Um, you know, put more insulation than buildings in other places in Canada cannot possibly uh, be an efficient way to fight, uh, to to reduce emissions. Uh, So we have the mildest climate. There's absolutely no reason why our buildings should, for example, have more insulation than than pretty much any other city in Canada. So it's these kind of things that uh, you know, that, that appear good and they sound good, but um, as far as I can tell, I haven't been really able to ascertain the cost of these additional requirements uh, on development projects. Um, and uh, there's no reason really they should be uh, as strict as they are in Vancouver relative to other places. And when we talk about property taxes as well, I mean, isn't there a formula in that the city brings in a certain amount of property taxes? I I think that as citizens and residents, uh, we've almost been told to or or. To, I guess told to expect that they're always going to go up uh, by however much and then oftentimes we'll get this huge number it will be scaled back by a few percentage points I think to make people perhaps feel better about that but is there a lack of transparency when a city council like Vancouver uh, to, to really show if you're going to up property taxes by five percent shouldn't they also then have to show exactly what residents are getting for that? Yes, that's exactly right. I would like to see the budget uh, uh, itemized and compared to other uh, cities on a line-by-line item. Um, and, um, and of course, that's difficult to do. Uh, and so that's why I'm, I'm very happy uh, the city has decided to appoint an auditor. And I very much look forward to uh, an independent auditor report on how the city is spending the money and, and where the money is going. But there's really only two options there. Either Vancouver is inefficient in providing core services or Vancouver is efficient, is quite good at providing core services, but it's also providing and spending money on other items. Um, and either way, we need to know. And then I believe voters will be able to uh, to decide which, um, which initiatives um, they would like to fund and which initiatives should be dropped. All right. And I know your group as well is urging residents and business owners as well uh, to speak up. But do you you think it's worth doing that or at least uh, making sure people, uh, their opinions are known to council? Well, absolutely. It's worth uh, doing that, I believe. I mean, we have to be respectful of the council's time. But, uh, but, uh, you know, I think it's important that council hears from 
residents and um, and understands that uh, increasing the taxes beyond uh, the already high levels is not without consequences. It puts uh, a further strain on people who are already struggling uh, because of the pandemic. All right. We will leave it there for today. Andre Pavlov, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate your time. Thank you for having me. Well, we are expecting an update this afternoon. The Monday update always includes COVID-19 numbers from the weekend. Uh, That will be carried live right here on CKNW. In the meantime, we know there are certain orders that are still in place, restrictions as well. One of those has to do with in-person religious gatherings. As of right now and the foreseeable future, in-person religious gatherings and worship services are suspended under a provincial health order. That means people are not legally permitted to attend a church, a synagogue, a mosque, any type of religious gathering in person. That didn't stop some people, though, this weekend from doing just that, saying it was their right to go to church and to worship if they wanted to. So who's right? We are joined now by Marty Moore, who's a staff lawyer with the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms. Marty, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me on, Jill. Uh, Well, I think one of the questions a lot of people are asking is, when does a public health order, uh, does it supersede our Constitution of of Rights and Freedoms? Or uh, can people say, no, I have a right to gather, I have a right to worship, and a public health order can't stop me from doing that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms does offer protection, of course, for faith communities to gather in religious worship. And then the question becomes is, Will a public health order, does it constitute a justified uh, restriction on that limitation? Of course, under the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, uh, our first uh, section one allows government to prove with evidence uh, that a restriction is justified. And so that becomes the question. And of course, in B.C., when you have you know, restaurants being opened, uh, you, have, you can go to the bar for a drink, Uh, you can attend a business meeting, you can attend a support group, then to have the government say you cannot attend any religious gatherings regardless of the safety precautions that you have in place, regardless of the size of the space, you're getting into questions as to whether it's justified, but also whether it's, quite frankly, discriminatory. So would it be different then if Dr. Bonnie Henry made this order and backed the order up by saying we have traced transmission to this religious gathering, to this place of worship, to this church, to this mosque? If she was to offer up evidence that shows these gatherings are causing the spread of the virus, would that be different? Yeah, I, I think I think the the actual circumstances that are being addressed are certainly very relevant, and I, I understand Bonnie Henry was asked a question along these lines, and I think she she indicated that a particular service maybe back in the summer uh, was was linked to five cases, um, and there was some dispute about exactly how those transmissions occurred. However, what I'm understanding and what I'm seeing from religious communities across the province is a is a full court press to actually comply with any of these gathering limitations uh, and and these uh, guidelines for social distancing, uh, even mask wearing. Uh, so the, the idea that uh, religious service is going to be more unsafe uh, than a restaurant, uh, which is often a lot tighter of a space, uh, it, it, it's something the government's going to have to answer in court if they actually are pushing these tickets to be prosecuted.
and issuing further tickets. Uh, is it then the the um, the difference then between and you've mentioned restaurants or say a Costco? Here's a, a big place where people can still go and follow the rules and have to follow these protocols, but it remains open. Uh, I mean, is a big part of the argument then uh, that that if everybody was shut down, fine, religious gatherings could stop because this is an order that applies to everybody. But it, it sounds like part of the argument is it's not fair. That's certainly part of it. And that's, that's really because, you know, under the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, uh, the government is required uh, to respect people's rights to equality. And that includes uh, faith communities' rights to be treated as equivalent for non-religious people. Um, but there's also the general reality, and you referenced it at the start of this conversation by saying context is relevant. You know, the context of a crowded religious uh, gathering in the Lower Mainland may be quite different than, uh, you know, uh, an entity meeting in the interior, uh, you know, with a very broad building that, that's not crowded. And, and those things need to be considered because Supreme Court jurisprudence on the Charter requires that uh, there be minimal impairment of the religious freedom in order to meet the objective. And, and of course, the objective of religious communities, which they share with Dr. Bonnie Henry, is to keep people safe and healthy. Uh, the well-being of these uh, religious congregants uh, is certainly uh, at the forefront of everyone's mind. Um, but to say that, you know, these provincial-wide orders are going to be justified uh, in the court, I think, I, I actually think it's a very uphill battle for the B.C. Uh, government to seek to win, uh, particularly if they push these tickets or, or church services or temple gatherings, synagogues, what have you, to court. There's an interesting decision actually out of the U.S. Supreme Court recently where a synagogue and I believe a Catholic archdiocese there took the state of New York to court, not for a complete prohibition on religious gatherings, but for limiting gatherings to 10 or to 25 people. And in that case, the U.S. Supreme Court uh, issued an injunction prohibiting the, the state from enforcing those requirements, finding that, you know, people are going to gatherings uh, at other places, non-religious gatherings. They are attending the grocery store. It's in a free society, particularly, you know, like, like the United States, Canada does protect freedom of conscience and religion. That's our first prior uh, first protection in the charter uh, in, in such a society government has to be uh, more respectful of that right uh, and if they seek to enforce it I think they can find a, a very uh, strong argument against such enforcement from the courts what if they were to make the argument that uh, churches places of worship are in the same category of other businesses that they have shut down say gyms uh, nightclubs other places where they were seeing transit uh, transmission as well yeah and i think that's where the evidence really matters and, and then and, and that bur- the burden is on government to justify any restrictions of charter freedoms now you know there there are charter rights to associate which would you know, protect other gatherings. But the, the charter freedom to associate in a religious gathering is, of course, uh, much uh, more developed in the law. And, and so that, that constitutional protection for religious uh, gatherings does merit extra consideration. And, and to see this order in these circumstances, uh, particularly across the province, 
Uh, I don't think that extra consideration was provided here. Uh, it's such an interesting uh, topic and you bring it up because I think people will hear that and, and a lot of people might say, I find the rule that I'm not allowed to socialize in my own home on my own private property mm-hmm. far more mm-hmm. offensive and intrusive yeah. than the rule that says I can't go to church. That's right. And, and, and you know, Canada is a very diverse country and, and the respect for people of faith and people not of faith you know, it's important to recognize that, that even for those restrictions within homes, uh, there's constitutional protection. And that's, again, where context matters, where the evidence of transmission matters. And so uh, the burden is up to government to justify these restrictions. And, uh, you know, people's constitutional freedom, for example, to associate, uh, to gather together and, and outdoor gatherings, you know, peaceful assemblies, that is being impacted by these orders. And, and at the end of the day, it's, it's going to be, if the government chooses to enforce these orders in a, in a stringent fashion and take them to court, uh, you know, it's going to be up to the government to justify with evidence the, res- the very real restriction that I think a lot of people feel on their charter freedoms. And, you know, when people are taking, like these faith communities, taking many precautions and, and the guidelines that they can, but yet they feel like they're being treated in a disparate and discriminatory fashion, uh, you know, that is of concern. What about the issue of, of deeming something essential in that I get if people make the argument it's not essential to go to a bar, perhaps, but it is essential to go to a grocery store or to get groceries. How is it a question of whether or not it's essential to go to church? Well, and, and that's that's really in the the eye of the adherent and in a free society, individuals, you know, have a lot of. Uh, of the authority and and the right to deem what is essential to them. So an individual may have a a personal belief and it might be very material to that person's well-being to attend a religious service. And, you know, they might be able to order their groceries online and that's not a problem for them. So the issue uh, between different individuals and what is deemed essential, you know, that's one of the difficulties of having, uh, you know, essentially a government official uh, make these decisions for everyone, uh, you know, and, and a narrowly tailored remedy is what the government is going to be required to prove when it goes to court on this and if it goes to court on this. And and so to deem across the province, uh, you know, this is not essential, uh, you know, that 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 is a concerning uh, a concerning issue, particularly in this case with religious services. All right. Uh, Marty Moore, thank you so much for joining us to talk more about this. Uh, thank you again for your time. You're very welcome. Thank you, Jill.